Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Sharon, it's really lovely to be back up here in Newcastle um, as guests of Climate Action North, as you are now. Why have you run a second rewilding conference? I think the second rewilding conference was mostly to bring together the uh, practitioners, I suppose you could call them. The first rewilding conference with Chris was to do uh, mostly to raise awareness of what we as businesses could do and play our part in rewilding. Um, this conference today is all about bringing together the real practical solutions, um, which in fact could mitigate the effects of climate change. So we're hearing from people like Alistair from Rewild in Britain and David from you know Cairngorm and um, the Lynx project about real practical solutions. So obviously trying to sort of, you know, speak to people who've actually done something and taken some form of action. So I think that's what's really important to us, to bring these businesses back together and we've actually increased the numbers today. So bring people back together and join and make partnerships and form collaborations, you know, think about what else we can do to support these businesses who are taking action uh, for rewilding and climate change. And it's a pretty packed hall in there, so a lot of the delegates are people who've got real influence in their local communities or directly through the businesses that they run. So this is a a cross, it feels like a very cross sector of of group of organisations, so it isn't just you know, perhaps more traditional conservationists, you've got some kind of hardcore business in there, haven't you? Absolutely, yeah. We've got private businesses, we've got NGOs, we've got, um, you know, we've got the trust, the charities, but we've also got, you know, real business people who actually will have access to funding, which is the most important. Um, It's a really important sort of... um, benefit I suppose for for getting projects off the ground and this whole conference has been about you know getting corporate people together to think about how we can support their their cause and their aims and we really have to join those people together and that's the whole point of this event today. Yeah and what better day to be doing it than World Environment Day. Absolutely. Well I'm really looking forward to speaking to some of the speakers later so I better let you get on but thanks so much. Thank you very much. And as Sharon was saying, today's conference is a real mix of practitioners, NGOs, businesses, community organisations. And and for this very short Planet Pod special for World Environment Day 2019, I'm going to be talking in a little bit more detail with Dr David Hetherington um, from the Cairngorms and Sasha Dench, who is commonly known as the human swan, and we'll be finding out why. David, you've been telling the Rewilding Conference about the need to possibly reintroduce the links into Scotland, but I think we ought to perhaps start by asking you about your your day job, which is actually trees. So you're responsible for forestry in Scotland, is that right? Some forestry. Yeah, I mean, my role um, is as woodland advisor for the Cairngorms National Park Authority. So really part of what I'm trying to do there is help stimulate the expansion of, of woodland in the National Park. And there has been a fair bit of, of, of woodland expansion, in fact, far more than in other parts of Scotland. Uh, and that's something we want to see, uh, keep on going. We have, we have ambitious targets for woodland expansion uh, in the National Park, which are very much in line and, in fact, probably exceed um, Scottish national targets uh, for woodland expansion. So, yeah, that's my job is to try and make that happen if I can. And how does the lynx fit into that? Because, um, you know, obviously it's a predator and presumably it doesn't necessarily have a direct impact on, on, on the woodland environment. So why are you so passionate about it and how does it fit into that landscape? 
Well, the, the lynx is first and foremost very much an animal of wooded landscapes. It's an ambush hunter, so it needs to get close enough to launch a surprise attack on its prey. And so therefore woodland provide lots of cover to do that. And the ideal um, prey animal in terms of size is the roe deer. It's about the same size as the lynx in terms of weight. And that's very much an, an animal of wooded landscapes as well. Of course, if you have too many roe deer or indeed other species of woodland deer, that can have a damaging impact on woodland ecology. It can prevent um, native woodland regeneration. It can certainly prevent uh, woodland expansion happening as well. And it can be an expensive business to try and prevent that from happening, whether through human culling, which of course involves a lot of staff time and resource, or through fencing. So there is potentially a role for a forest-dwelling predator of woodland deer to aid the efforts um, of of, of woodland expansion, but of course uh, it's it's a potentially sensitive and contentious issue that needs to be bottomed out. And that's because the lynx could potentially take, um, you know, small sheep or actually have a negative impact in terms of the landscape. And is that actual or is that just perceived by, by farmers and by by people who perhaps don't know the lynx as well as you do? Well, lynx can kill sheep, for sure. They do kill sheep, um, and if reintroduced to the UK, we'd almost certainly kill sheep here as well, and I, and I think we need to be absolutely honest about that. However, it, it's far too simplistic to say that if we brought lynx here, that all they would do is eat, eat, eat sheep, um, and it would, we'd be overrun with them, and it would be a complete disaster for the countryside. I think that's a, a gross oversimplification. It's quite a complex issue between sheep and lynx. Um, lynx, um, th- their relationship with sheep varies hugely across Europe, it very much depends on the style of husbandry. So the worst case scenario by a very long way is Norway, um, where they graze two and a half million sheep in woodland, um, where of course the ambush cover is, and where there are actually, relative to Britain, very few woodland deer. So there they have a bit of an acute issue, but that is the, the, the worst case scenario by a long way, like I say. If you go next door to Sweden, where they actually have four times as many lynx as Norway, they're losing far fewer. So their compensation scheme each year in Sweden is paying out 30 7,000 euros or thereabouts, whereas next door in Norway is paying 3 million euros. So there's a massive difference, and Sweden is the second worst case scenario in Europe by a long way. So, um, you know, I would suggest comparisons with Norway are not particularly fair in a UK context because we have far more wild deer for a start, and the vast majority of our woodlands don't contain sheep. So I think um, it would be wiser to be making comparisons with other countries such as Sweden or perhaps Switzerland, and there you'll find that predation by lynx on sheep does happen, but it's small scale, it's localised and it's controllable. And um, when you mentioned in the conference earlier that you know we had to cull deer, there was a kind of collective intake of breath, because obviously you know, we wild in conference, a lot of people are very passionate about animals, but, but that's necessary isn't it? Keeping the landscape managed, we do have to have a deer cull, so it's not as if we're doing something by possibly reintroducing the lynx that's, that we wouldn't be doing anyway. Yes, I mean, uh, you know, ethically, I think there is an argument for controlling deer, absolutely. There would have been uh, natural predators of deer in the form of, of the lynx and the wolf. Uh, humans eradicated both those species. And so, really, apart from the, the, you know, the odd fox or eagle taking the odd calf or kid uh, each year, there's very little predation going on. And then, the, you know, the population is then left to the rigours of, of harsh winters and therefore a lack of food. And therefore, you can have large numbers of deer starving to death, which for many people would be equally unpalatable. 
So if we want to to um, have uh, you know biodiverse, rich, expanding forests, then we do need to control deer, um, and that is part and parcel of of you know highland life. We we need to control deer. Um, we have very many red deer in Scotland, in particular, but also roe deer. But red deer, we we have far more than most European countries do, um, and it's only a small country. So um, and if we're going to see expanding woodlands in order to for all the, the wide benefits they bring, whether it's timber products, whether it's immunity, whether it's biodiversity or whether it's the fight against climate change, then we do need to control grazing. Yeah. And actually, in some cases, you, you, you think the lynx might be a tourist attraction in its own right. And we're not talking about hundreds of lynx here, are we? Or perhaps just a few hundred. But they might, you know, bring the tourists in. Is that possible? Yeah, not in the way that some people might think. Uh, you might think, right, well, normally in terms of wildlife tourism, we're used to people paying money to go into a hide and then see an animal. You know, you might do that with ospreys or perhaps beavers in some places. Um, that doesn't quite work. There are some parts of Europe where, you, where large carnivore tourism is definitely a thing. You can pay and stay in a hide in the forest and see bears and wolverines in Finland, or you can go to places like Spain and Italy and be in a landscape where you've got a good chance at certain times of day with binoculars or telescope of seeing a wolf pack move through an open landscape. Neither of those methods work in terms of watching lynx. They're very shy, they're very elusive, they're usually active at times of day when we're not about, and they're in cover. So it's really difficult to watch lynx and therefore to derive an income from people directly watching them. But what happens in some parts of Europe, particularly in Germany, is that lynx are used as branding icons. It's you know people associate begin to associate a particular German national park with lynx because it's being used as a branding icon and people want to be in that landscape because in their minds it's wild and beautiful because it has this wild and beautiful animal living in it. And they just want to be in wild beautiful nature. Uh, and they know pretty well that the chance of seeing a lynx is you know vanishingly small, but at least you have a chance if you go there. Yeah, and there's a guaranteed chance, of course, if people buy your beautiful book. So <laughs> go on, give us a quick plug for the book. Well, I, I recently um, published a book called The Lynx and Us in conjunction with a very talented French photographer called Laurent Gélin, who I think has the, the finest portfolio of wild lynx images that there is in Europe. And really what the book is trying to do is explore that relationship between the lynx and human beings, particularly in this continent. It's a very busy continent where we have farming and forestry and hunting and tourism and what those sorts of interrelationships might be because, you know, we have a growing discussion in this country about lynx reintroduction. People are getting you know, quite opinionated about it and there's quite a heated discussion going on. But the levels of awareness, I found, were actually pretty low. So the book is trying to take across from all of Europe all the science and present it in a non-technical, balanced way so that people can hopefully have a better informed national discussion about it. Thank you. And it is very beautiful. Thank you very much. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Sasha Denge, who completed the most extraordinary flight um, alongside the migrating Buick swans. Sasha, that must have been an amazing experience. It was the most amazing experience of my of my life, I'd say. Not only for being able to put myself, but also researchers inside the head of migrating birds to really get a much better idea of what migration is like for them, but also being able to speak to people. That's something that is often missing in conservation, certainly in remote areas. Being able to land in a community and find out from people face-to-face what's their relationship with swans, um, how often do they see them, what changes do they notice, and uh, give them an opportunity to ask me questions back. Because I didn't come across a single community in remote areas that had any idea that the Buick swans were declining. And we'd known about it for 20 years, and there'd been sort of press releases and things, but not in Russia, for example. So just being able to speak to people face-to-face was, um, yeah, an amazing opportunity. 
And for people who don't know what you did, I mean, you were basically had a microlite and you kind of flew alongside the swans as they travelled from Russia back to the UK. Is that right? So I had a, a paramotor, which is essentially a paraglider, a big piece of fabric with a fan on your, on your back, a, a propeller. And uh, there were um, about eight Buick swans that had GPS collars on them. So as soon as the first swans left on migration, I set off on migration with them. So yeah, I followed the general route. And in particular, we're looking at those, at those birds and their journeys. And wherever they stopped and were using a wetland site, I would stop also and see... What, why are they using this site, what threats are there here, um, and talk to local people about it. Um, so, yeah, that was the journey. The birds were basically trying to survive the migration, and for them, one in four often doesn't f- survive the return migration. So for them, it's survival. For me, my main aim was really stopping and talking to people. So you really were a human swan. I mean, as close to a human flying yeah. as you can get. yes. And I did have one amazing experience of the birds flying with me like I was the lead bird. So that really? was oh, special. That must have been incredible. Mm. So what kind of um, threats are they facing? Is it just loss of habitat or is it obviously threats from, from humans as well? Uh, there are there are many. Obviously, the, the climate is changing for them. It's making the weather more erratic. There's more power lines up all around, certainly across Europe. You don't notice it so much across the remote bits of, of Russia, of course. Um, but... The power lines is, is an, an issue, and it's going to be a, a bigger issue. And what I particularly noticed when you're flying the migration with them in August, you've quite often got low cloud cover. And at low cloud cover, the birds pretty much have to fly at power line height. Um, not only that, there's often power lines around wetlands where there are people. Um, and since about the 70s, when birds are quite often feeding n- not um, on the wetlands, but actually on farmlands around... This forces them, dawn and dusk, at low light, when it's particularly hard to see power lines, to be making flights out of a wetland, um, again at power line height, um, out to feed and back again. Um, But the other thing, when you literally fly at bird's eye eye level, uh, a power line, for us on the ground, like it's not hugely easy to see, but you can see it against a sky. When you're at swan's eye height... Um, they completely dis- disappear against dark fields or against the horizon. They're absolutely impossible to see. Um, Is there anything one can do about that? I mean, obviously people are not going to take power lines away because we need power. Is it possible to, to, to make them more visible, for example? Yeah, you, you can. There are different styles of diverters. I think the, the power industry probably needs to get together and think about with the huge increase in power lines there will be from for example across eastern europe there are plans for a lot more wind farms going in and that power is going to have to come across to the baltic which is right across the flyway for the buick swans and many other things there should be um more they should be having a better look at what ones actually should be should be buried because there could be an impending quite a drastic crisis to have that many more power lines directly across Mm -hmm. um a, a flyway um, but yes, you can put diverters on of different kinds. Um, there's big ones, small ones, bright ones, ones that whiz and make noise, ones that flash, and they can make a huge difference. You know, from we've seen it in the UK sites where you might have got you know seven seven swans dying in in a month. Um, put that in in the months the following years, there's nothing at all. So they can and make a huge difference. That's relatively low cost as well. I should it's imagine. Relatively low cost, and yeah, we did find that there was a site in Lithuania. We we ran a story on birds hitting power lines. And somebody watched the story and realised that near them there's a site where there's regularly swan collisions with power lines, um, but so regularly that they could go down there and sit with their phone and record it happening. Um, and 
having that footage then and the general public interest, those um, lines have now got big diverters on them. So um, you can, if you know, if, if people show enough interest and initiative, then you know, with a bit of with a bit of encouragement, you really can make a difference. Yeah. And the Buick swans are in decline. Obviously, and it, your your trip has been hugely important in raising awareness amongst people in, uh, about the the plight of the swan. But while you were up there, did you notice any changes in the landscape? Because we're talking today about rewilding, and one of the things that's most powerful, I think, is when we see those aerial photographs of how we've changed our landscape and how we've ripped out natural habitat, and that's created biodiversity loss. Is that something you experienced from from your bird's eye view? That's the most stark thing to notice from the wilds of the Arctic, where, yes, there's illegal shooting going on, but as you move across Western Europe, the disappearance of wild spaces is very very drastic but then also landing you realize when speaking to people that when you're at a human's eye view and you're looking across a landscape it's quite hard to see how little biodiversity they are because you see sort of hedgerows against hedgerows in the distance and it all combines um, to look like there's a reasonable amount of um, of greenery but from the air you notice they're really fine lines of habitat sometimes that we're that we're leaving for for wildlife or a wood that you might walk through seems really big but actually the path is just meandering back and forth a lot in actually quite a small space and on a on a scale of kind of biodiversity and functioning ecosystems they're way too small to be meaningful and it's not really any surprise that where our biodiversity is disappearing and in terms of the swans, is there something that we can do just as a general public? I mean, you know, obviously we need to support organisations like the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust and other organisations, but is there something that individuals can do? I mean, is it calling on us as perhaps consumers to call out the power companies where there's power lines or to campaign for something actively? What would your kind of call to action for us be? Yeah, take an active interest. That everybody has way more power than I think they think they have. And you don't need to know everything to be able to put in a request, ask a question. If you're not getting an answer, then, you know, push it a bit further so you will eventually. So, yes, take an interest. There are plenty of examples where people have... Um, reported power line collisions for example but also the rewilding and recreation of wetlands that will be something that will be talked about in areas all around the country and back back rewilding and back rewetting of our landscapes we have lost I think the figure is something like 90% of wetlands in the last 400 years but 35% of that is just since 1970 our capacity for um, for tidying up nature and removing um, removing wetlands has grown hugely so back any schemes to, to potentially put some of that back. Fantastic, thank you so much Thank you to my guests and thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you about what you think about Planet Pod You can tweet at planet underscore pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. It helps us make better programmes. Be sustainable and stay green. Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer.